Hey everybody, welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List, and we are here with another wonderful compilation. Uh, I believe it is called Normalizing Therapy, which I think is an extremely important thing and something that, um, incidentally, we've done on the podcast, wasn't setting out to do. To me, it's always been normal and not weird or embarrassing, but I understand it is to a lot of people. People are self-conscious about it, resistant to it. I think they shouldn't be. And uh, there's some great therapy talk here. Uh, fine people at Laugh Button were nice enough to put together a little compilation. I apologize, my refrigerator is humming. That's what you're hearing. It's driving me crazy, but not so much because I am in therapy. Of course, everybody knows my therapist, Helen Lefkowitz. I reference her often. And there's going to be an article about him, I believe, soon. And I think New York Magazine or something, which is exciting. Um, but anywho, um, we got a great little compilation here with the great Gary Gullman, one of the best comedians of all time, one of my dearest friends of all time, and a big proponent of therapy. We have the same therapist. We chat about it. And uh, Carmen Lynch, who's a brilliant comedian and hilarious. We talked a lot about therapy. And then, of course, I have um, uh, Miranda Hughes and um, Josh Cohen on, who are ther therapists themselves. They were so nice. That was one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. So we got a little compilation for you. Just wanted to update you on the future of the show. We have two episodes in the can. Uh, I'm going to put a couple more in the can to kind of get out in front of it. So um, it's not too overwhelming or stressful as it can be, which is opposite of what I'm going for. So there's new episodes coming soon. We recorded one with Sam Marill, which was awesome. Just did one with my friend Matt Wayne, which I loved. And um, they will be out very soon. So thank you for your patience. And I hope you've been enjoying these uh, little compilation episodes. I know I have. I'm really excited about them. And uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, which is nice. So that's it. And um, I hope that uh, you go to therapy if you need it. Don't feel um, insecure or self-conscious about it. It's great. It's the best thing I've ever done. I feel rehabilitated from anxiety, panic, and OCD. Still deal with them. But I've learned acceptance. And I want to give you one of my favorite quotes and things that has changed my whole perspective on life from my therapist, the great, wonderful, Alan Lefkowitz, he always says, it's become my mantra. Fear is just fear, and my thoughts are not reality. There you go, folks. Fear is just fear. Your thoughts are not reality. Now enjoy these conversations with my pals. Thank you for listening. I love you. Fear is just fear and your thoughts aren't reality, which has become totally. like my mantra is that it's just fear. And as my therapist always says, of course, like, of course, you're anxious. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm so nervous. And he's like, of course, it makes sense. You should be nervous. You're on TV or whatever situation when you're anxious. Usually it's like it, it makes sense. It's your body trying to uh, you're nervous. I mean, you have a nervous system. It's there for a reason. So it's no big now deal. It's just anxiety. 
Do you think that um, it's something nature or is it nurture? Like, do you think it's something like it runs in your family or do you think if you had therapy at age 10 or your parents or guardians had been more like, let it all out, things are wonderful, stay, do you think it would have changed you? I think, well, my therapist is, and I've heard people be like, he's completely incorrect, but my therapist who I love and treasure, um, he says it's all learned behavior. His thought is there's some things like, um, you know, bipolar or maybe a couple things that are hereditary neurological diseases or whatever, but most behavior is learned. And my mother's extremely anxious. My father had anxiety and his brother had panic attacks. And um, I think it's more the way I was raised in my family, the way my family yeah. connects and responds to things is sort of trained. I don't know, but I, I think about that all the time. I'm like, if I grew up in you know, Haleiwa, Hawaii, would I be completely different? Would I be like surf yeah. guy and the, hey man, all right, it's cool. Yeah. Or would I be this way? I don't know. What do you think? I think it's what everything you said, because I mean, I, my father comes from a, an alcoholic side and I think that generation, no one in my family has ever been to therapy before. Mm -hmm. So I think they just learned how to just deal with it and they've never really had to live outside of their bubble so you know um my parents met quickly they got married they're still together so they didn't have I mean they had their own struggles but like you know maybe they just never had to deal with therapy or medication you know yeah. just yeah, a different world totally my my parents the same way they got married really young and they got pregnant with my sister and then they were just sort of together and my father's sort of boston irish catholic not, not a lot of feelings and it was a lot of uh my mother sort of was overly protective and there was a lot of i think my family the adults just talked pretty plainly around kids so there was a lot yeah. of revealing a lot of what could go wrong in life of like you know, we don't want anyone breaking in the house. We got to put the locks up because people will just break it. <laughs> totally, Stuff yeah. like that where you're like, what? And yeah. then like, I remember my uncle who's like four years older than me. I always have to say, people. I say uncle, people think he's 30 yeah. years older than me. But uh -huh. some friends that were my age essentially got jumped at down the end of this, my street. Like they got mugged and it's funny that the siren's going off while I'm talking about getting mugged. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, but <laughs> they got... They got mugged when I was 11. It was during the 93 World Series, I remember. And like, there was just like, oh my God, we got mugged. And like, we got to call the police. They just jumped out of the bushes. And to me, like, I was just like, oh, oh my God, like people can jump out of the bushes. Like, and no one ever sat me down to be like, listen, like bad things happen, but most likely they won't. And I can remember driving through bad neighborhoods and my family being like, lock the doors, people. And the idea that like, wait, someone could just open our car door and, and pull us out of here? Like, there was a lot of stuff like that um, that you're like, geez, this is crazy. And so I think it just yeah. put this crazy fear in you. And this feeling of lack of control was really scary. I, I don't know. I mean, those are some thoughts that I've had that could lead me to feel that way. Yeah, I remember moving to New York. And at some point, I mean, it was such a, 
I guess I was living in a sort of a bubble coming from Virginia, but then moving to New York, I was like, this is crazy and amazing. And look at all these opportunities. But then one day it hit me like, I, it's almost like I almost wasn't ready mentally to deal with anything. Right. You know, and that's when I, I went through this, I need to talk to somebody because, you know, in, in, a, in that generation, especially in my family, you know, you don't go see a therapist or a, that's like for crazy people, you know? Yes. Yeah, same. No, I, I felt. It's, th- it's not to improve yourself. You know, yeah. it's, it's because you need to build, you are, you are bipolar or schizophrenic or something. Yes, exactly. It's something that you, you go see if you have like a, a straight jacket on. It's just every, the walls are white and everyone's wearing yeah. white and it's not something that just regular people go to, but I mean, I couldn't recommend it more. Um, but also there was no time to really, um, process things. There was no, like, I, I mean, I'm a big believer now that like meditation should be taught in like public school when you're like six time to yeah. like sit and reflect and focus on your breath and, and kind of go inward. Um, yeah. which I've only learned in the last couple of years through Eckhart Tolle and, uh, Sam Harris and Jack Cornfield and all these great meditation people and getting really into meditation and, and therapy, of course, which I also think is so important because it's more you and specific to you and your family. And it's exercising your brain. I started off, I feel it was almost like the dark ages in, in therapy in that I, I started going my freshman year of college and I kept it from my girlfriend for two years. I would, I would sneak in and out of the place. I never told her what I was going. I would, whenever I had to go in the summer, I would say I had to check on my financial aid. And she, she, she said, when I finally told her what was going on, she said, I, I knew it was odd that they would, that they would um, make you come in and discuss your financial aid every Thursday. (laughs) It seems so unnecessary and that they were making you jump through too many hoops. And, and so I, I was afraid at that time that if I told her that I was suffering from depression, that she would be scared off. And, and I'm sure there were people, I'm sure there are people nowadays who would say, this is too much for me. I can't, I can't handle this. I, I, I will say that since college, I had a policy of telling anyone I dated as soon as it got reasonably serious that I had suffered from this thing and, and that I was, I was doing okay now, but it gets dark and, and I, I, I felt comfortable sharing that. And also I, I didn't think it was fair not to share it with, with someone. So I, I, I think it's, it's really important. The other thing is that for the most part, it, it doesn't make the people run away and it brings you closer and, and raises the relationship to a, to a higher, higher level of intimacy and, and confidence. Yeah. I think that's a good thing um, to put out there and let people hear, because I think men particularly, or maybe women too, because you know, so many men are like, ah, women are crazy and whatever. Uh, but men, I think particularly have 
this feeling built in that they're supposed to be, uh, you know, tough and un, unaffected and all this stuff. So I think it does help that to let people know that that is good for a relationship to get that out there. And then it's like you're working together as a team. That's what I find is nice about um, marriage is sort of we're committed to each other. So no matter where you go mentally, I'm going to do my best to help in whatever way I can and vice versa. Um, yeah. That's been yeah. really helpful. Yeah. I think that that collaborative approach is, is so helpful and, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's, right or helpful for men to try and continue this this absurd men keep their their emotions to themselves and don't discuss their issues and their problems and this this i i honestly believed until i i read an article i think in the in the in the in the atlantic or this this woman named Peggy Ornstein, and she, you should you should read it. She she studied girls for a long time, young women, and then she turned her attention to young boys. and And so I was prepared to read that boys of the millennial, the Generation Z, that they are very open about their feelings and they are uh, more evolved than we were and that they have different views and and philosophies on what it is to be a to be a man and i was i was wrong young young boys high school boys still think that a strong man is is quiet about his feelings and his emotions that he should be dominant and aggressive and that it's that it's weak to to not it's it's weak to open up about about your your issues your feelings and your your troubles and and that that really surprised me because i i i really believe that along with the, with at least a dozen other things including medication and exercise and eating right and and getting out and being with with people and and adjusting my my definition of success, I think coming to terms with what I always considered my weakness, which was the fact that i I wasn't a a dominant personality that i was I was very athletic, but i I didn't really I was always the guy, oh, if he would just get aggressive, if he would just if he would just bowl somebody over on his way to the hoop, if he, if he would just use those athletic gifts in a more aggressive way, he would be so much better. He would be such a, a star. And, and so I hated that aspect of me. And it wasn't until I, I addressed it out in the open on, on a, a This American Life with Ira Glass, where I talked about what a colossal failure I was in, in, in football at Boston College, that I, I felt unburdened. I was like, oh, nobody has this on me anymore. This idea that I was so soft as a, as a, as a tight end that I could, I could jump very high and, and catch the ball. And then I really 
wanted to get to the ground as, as soon as possible so that I didn't take too big of a, of a hit. And, and so it was, it was so cathartic, which is a word that gets used so often, but it, it really felt like such a, a relief that, that nobody had this on me. And it goes back to something Alan told me on like one of my first weeks of, of therapy where he said, if everybody knows everything about you, if you're an open book, then they have nothing on you. And, and I've heard it said in other ways that you're only as sick as your secrets or, or just other things like that. But I, I, I really think that, that, and, and it's another Alanism, accept yourself. You pull the string and Alan says, accept yourself. This is oh. who you are. Stop fighting, stop fighting your, your nature. And, and I, I think that was, I don't think it's a coincidence that I've had my most sturdy, long lasting recovery remission from depression and anxiety at about the same time I came to terms with, with what I considered my, my weakness, which was actually in, in many ways a strength or at least addressing it and being honest about it takes a, takes a strength. And my, 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 Strength is made stronger through my weakness. I think your friend Jesus Christ said something like that. Um, I do have a friend in Jesus. Um, <laughs> but My mother found these notes from, I saw a therapist or an analyst when I was seven. And she took took notes on them. And some of them are like, it, it was interesting because first of all, it was like emotional for me to see, but it also kind of helped me kind of what we were talking about earlier to be like, oh, I've just been like this since I was at least seven, which does take a little bit of that shame away because part of me is not to just take advantage of having two therapists on my podcast here, but, um, but there is an amount of shame of like, God, I had good parents. I, I'm successful. I'm healthy. And yet I'm still riddled with this anxiety and fear. So finding these things of like, Oh, this is how I was raised to be or um, sort of created does help a little bit. Then you're still stuck dealing with all those things. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, Miranda could probably agree where it, a lot of clients come in and they first say, I'm broken. I, I need you to fix me. There's something wrong with me. I've always been like this. And they take it. There's so much shame and there's so much weight they put on. Like, it, it, that's just how they were born as if they were, you know, the doctor handed them and said, you hear you're, you're given someone with anxiety issues and panic disorder and this and that. But it, a lot of it is learned. Most of it. Is, is learned or a response to the, to the environment. Yeah. So that's interesting. And Miranda, maybe you can talk about this a little, like, so I developed panic disorder and panic attacks and started having like really severe panic attacks in my early twenties where I would be on the ground and, and shaking like violently and it'd go about a half hour heart pounding and, and just completely out of control. And those were like, I would say that I have like anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Well, I have anxiety attacks where I'm obsessing about a tooth or some kind of hypochondriac episode. And then I have panic attacks where I'm literally on the floor, legs are shaking, like it looks like I'm severely ill. But my parents never had panic attacks like that. So it's interesting that it's learned behavior, but no one in my family ever had panic attacks to that extreme. How does that come about, if that's answerable? 
Yeah, I think it's answerable because I p- panic attacks. We're talking about it got to a point where like the, the lid's been blown off the container. Like there's no stopping it now. The anxiety that builds up to it and the patterns of not being able to regulate that anxiety, that's what's learned. The panic attacks push you one step beyond. And the par- what I try to say to my clients is like panic attacks will convince you brain, body, all of you that you are dying. Like this is the end. This is how we die. And, and your body responds appropriately, but it's stemming from anxiety and just it too much body shuts down. Can't do it. So it's really important to be able to notice the connection between the mind and the body, which I know we talk about all the time, but when you feel it in those types of terms, like you have people that come in and say, Oh, it's just in my head. I have panic attacks. I get anxious, whatever. If I took your blood pressure during a panic attack, we're not just saying, Oh, it's in your head. This is quite literally serious as a heart attack. You're going to have medical manifestations of physical or of mental anxiety and panic and things like that. So it's important to kind of, yeah, nobody taught me to have a panic attack, but I also wasn't taught how to regulate that anxiety and bring myself back down. So that didn't happen either. Right. Yeah. I'm, exactly. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I've, t- I've taken it a step further, I guess. But may, so maybe if you listen to last week's episode with, with Judd, we, I kind of talked about how my anxiety somehow manages. And this blew my mind that I could start having like really physical pain, like in my tooth, not from even grinding my teeth, but from actually just, just uh, this weird um pain there and it's like not a uh, what do you call it uh, acute pain it's just a general pain and then a doctor tells me there's nothing wrong with your teeth and it goes away and it's like i have no pain for about a week and then all of a sudden i got stomach cramps or a headache and i've had so many which is like magical in a way to me that and that that's kind of stopped through therapy and all this stuff um so i have progressed but how does that work exactly i mean i asked uh, Dr. Brewer about it a little bit. And I, I feel like I didn't get a completely straight answer that like, how can you have stomach pains, uh, diarrhea, headaches, migraines, just from thinking? I mean, is that so I guess that's the body just reacting to these thoughts as though it's you're in danger. Is that basically right? Yeah, and it's acting like thinking is a separate thing. But it's all like Miranda said before, the body mind, every system in the body is kind of connected and intertwined. So as you go to that fight or flight response, you get really stressed, really overwhelmed. Every system in the body is kind of uh, activated at that point. Right. And for you, if you're not processing through it in the right way, um, it might end up manifesting in a stomach ache, in a headache, in a nagging toothache. That's signaling you need to do something. You need to do something different um, than you're doing. Right. And, and have you guys read... Dr. Sarno, do you know Healing Back Pain, that mm-hmm. yeah, book? Yeah. I mean, that basic idea is about that your, your brain-body connection is creating some kind of pain to have you focus on as opposed to thinking about whatever happened in your childhood. Is there any truth? Because I know he's a very controversial doctor, but that book made a tremendous amount of sense to me. And every time I've heard him talk. It does give you a focus, right? It gives you something to take your mind off of anything. It doesn't right. necessarily mean it has to be as deep as a child, but when you're focusing on your tooth, for example, does it kind of take the edge off the anxiety? Cause I'm only worried about the tooth. I'm not worried about my work day, you know, my other pains, anything else that's come up. I'm very focused on the, I'm hyper focused on the tooth and that gives me an outlet for my anxiety. So that's, right. something that's worth looking at. Yeah. And it's, but it, it's so deeply subconscious. This is yeah. fascinating because in my mind, I mean, my present mind, my conscious mind, I'm like, I would give anything to not be thinking about this tooth, 
Mm-hmm. But obviously my subconscious is like, no, fucking think about your tooth. You don't have to think about, you know, your dad didn't call or whatever it is or whatever show. Um, what is it like? I'm 39 years old. My parents were young when they had me. So they're in their early, early 60s. I mean, what's it like if I go there and go, hey, I got OCD. I got alcoholism. It's all learned behavior. You fucked me. What, what is this? <laughs> what is that? That's such a fascinating idea to me. And then I leave the room and they're left there. I don't know what the question is exactly. I am nobody steal this because I'm writing a movie about it. But what is <laughs> what is that? I mean, it's an, the idea of being like I need to address this because it's causing a lot of anxiety and stress and anger for me. Mostly anger, I get. Is it wrong to put that on their lap? Is it good? I mean, is it what happened? I don't know if this is a question. I'm volleying it back to you, Miranda. You look like you have something to say there. It is. Yeah. When we went through grad school, my roommate and I had a deal that if anything happened to one of us, the other one would completely destroy the computer and any notes because we had to be writing on our own families the entire time we were in school. I wasn't welcome at family gatherings without, I swear to God, if you bring up what happened when dad was 12 again, you need to leave because it was constantly drudging up this stuff, right? So you in therapy individually would work with, potentially would work with your therapist to figure out, is it helpful to address them? face-to-face? Is that something I need? How do I want that to look? If I need to address them in my mind and not directly, how does that look? Do I write them a letter? Do I kind of work through it with what they call an chair technique kind of thing? Or do I need to like come to terms with the best, they did the best they could with what they had and it, can I move past it without directly speaking to them? And nothing is a given, you know, you don't necessarily have to confront them. You don't necessarily have to not. What's going to work best for you? What's going to work best for your family? And then if you decide to talk to them, I mean, it's a good idea to have it happen in session, right? But what do you want that to look like? How do you make that structured in a way that you're not going to be like, remember when I was five? Thanks for that. You completely screwed me up from there on out, right? How do you make it a constructive conversation to get what you need out of it, to get those needs met that were missing back when you were, however? Right, right. Yeah, it's a great point because if there's certain feelings coming up for you and it's like, oh, geez, like to I'm blaming my parents for these feelings. I think there, there's definitely ways you could soothe yourself there. But if your parents are still behaving in certain ways that are maybe violating certain boundaries, behaving, and you could take care of yourself now, like Miranda just said, telling them what you need right now. And that could be really, really great. Maybe not even having to confront them for everything from the past. But like Miranda said, there are ways to maybe talk about things that have happened Um but it might take some like professional help, like, you know, really working on your own stuff because we could easily get very triggered and then it can turn um, pretty toxic. Right. I mean, first of all, this is proving I have a great therapist because he says all these same things, or maybe it's proving that you guys are great therapists Um, because I know he's a great therapist, but um, (laughs) no, it's interesting. There's a, in, in sobriety circles, there's a saying, uh, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Um, which I love is that idea of you can't just be like, fuck you, dad, or whatever. But you can say, man, I, I really could have used a little more help there. I would have, if you could have said this or, or hugged me or done this, that would have been really beneficial. Um, but like you said, you have to kind of weigh that of like, how much is this going to destroy or upset this person? And I can't change it anyways. We can't go back to, you know, 1989 and have someone say, you're not going to get AIDS, pal. Here's a, you know, here's a hug. So, it is a, a tricky thing, I guess. Um, and hopefully people are getting something out of this and it's not just me 
No, but you, <laughs> you bring up a good point because sometimes we'll say something, dang, when, when I was six years old, I wish you hugged me more. I wish you were calmer. I wish uh, we connected more and played more or something like that. And we're talking about something in the past that maybe we could still have met right now. I could ask my dad, you know, hey, we, I know we didn't hug a lot then or it kind of bothered me then that we didn't. You know, I, I would really appreciate one now. I don't, you know, maybe we could find a way to connect now rather than just not saying it's a bad thing to ever focus on that or, you know, get some insight from that, some awareness from that, maybe talk about it. But there are ways that you can make a change right now, too, that could be really helpful. Yeah, no, that's something I had to do in my life, and it's been beneficial. As Pete Townsend wrote, let's get together before we get much older. Hmm? Teenage <laughs> Wasteland. Um, Bob O'Reilly is the name of the song. Yeah, I have yeah. to say Bob O'Reilly because other people email me and go, that's not the name of the song, you idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcasts.